Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. America's getting older, and we're getting older fast. In the United States, someone turns 65 years old every eight seconds. That's 10,000 people per day who can officially call themselves retirees. Ready or not, the number of Americans needing help with daily activities and medical tasks is about to skyrocket. So who's going to care for our rapidly aging nation? And how will we pay for long-term care? Well, today we're going to tackle these and other care-related issues head-on. I'm thrilled to be joined from Maine by Kevin Simowitz. He's the political director of Caring Across Generations, a national coalition of advocacy groups working to transform the long-term care system in the United States. Prior to his stint with Caring Across Generations, Kevin worked as a community organizer in Virginia and in Maine on a range of progressive issues and candidate campaigns. Kevin Simowitz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. Can you tell us first how Caring Across Generations came about and basically what the coalition's goals are? Sure. So Caring Across Generations is a campaign that's about five years old, and we were started with the idea that we needed to change and transform the long-term care system in the country in a way that improved the system for both people who are receiving care, seniors and people with disabilities, as well as for the people who are providing that care. And for us, that meant higher wages for care workers, as well as career ladders and easier entry points into the care force. And we also know right now when we say long-term care system, it's not really much of a system. It's a little bit of a patchwork that works for some people, but by and large needs to be improved so that people can have access to the care that they need, the care that they want, and that they can receive it in their homes and their communities. We have really, as a campaign, thought about how, as people get older, can they stay in places where they're comfortable and feel safe and feel secure and receive really high-quality care there from people who are paid wages that reflect how important this work is for our senior population. Mm-hmm. What is the average wage being paid to a home care worker today? A lot of home care workers still make minimum wage on whatever state that they're in. And then because a lot of, well, I should acknowledge that a lot of care work is provided by family members. So Mm -hmm. a huge percentage of care work in the country is provided by people who are never compensated for the work that they do. And then people who are on the paid side of the care workforce make minimum wage. And because some of those folks are subject to wage exploitation, have made less than minimum wage for long periods of time. But we know that these aren't, with a couple exceptions, um, in states where partners have done a lot of great work. They're not jobs that have wages that reflect how important this work is in our communities. I I think that we keep coming back to what sort of care would we want for our parents and for our grandparents and for the members of our community. And that's certainly not reflected in the wages that care workers earn. 
Mm-hmm. The issue of immigration for me, is tied to, at least with regard to non-family member caregivers, but um, home health workers are typically people of color. And I, uh, in my own family, I've noticed when we've had to hire care workers, some of them speak English well, some of them don't speak English very well, but it seems to me that the issue of low wages is directly tied to the culture, and I mean the country of origin, where these home care workers are coming from. And to me, there is an exploitation factor in there because maybe they can't speak up for themselves. Can you talk about the cultural barriers that may exist with home care workers and wages? Absolutely. I think I think you're spot on. I mean, 90% of the care in the country is provided by women, and that's important to note, too. By women. So mm-hmm. I care for but, you know, it's a care force that's predominantly women, predominantly women of color. And, yeah, the issues of exploitation are not far away from that workforce. And one of the ways that that conversation was really elevated was by now last year. So used to saying this year, but now it was last year's um, rule by the Department of Labor to extend overtime protection to home care workers. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, home care workers fell outside of the protected groups under the Department of Labor's overtime rules. So there's a wage exploitation there of workers who are being asked to work long past 40 hours a week and weren't being paid for it um, was, you know, really presenting, obviously, huge financial challenges for workers in those jobs or forcing people who were really qualified in those positions out of the care force and into other jobs where they maybe had the chance to earn higher wages. So what the Department of Labor did last year, um, I would say in concert with a lot of community support all across the country of people raising this issue, the huge step forward to actually take that issue head on and talk about what exploitation in the care force mm-hmm. looks like. Mm-hmm. Why, why has it been so hard to draw political attention to the issue of caregiving? I mean, it's ironic because, you know, retirement security is sort of seen as a public policy matter, but you can't retire securely if you're losing wages caring for a loved one, right? And we know right. people who know about this know that unpaid caregivers, at least in, I think, 20, the recent years, maybe it was in 2014, lost to the tune of $470 billion in lost wages. Um, so why is it so hard to draw attention to this issue politically? That's, uh, that's a big number. Well, I think what is the, I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one of the big ones is that, by and large, this conversation has been one that has sort of lived in our family rooms and around kitchen tables. It is an incredibly personal issue, mm-hmm. and it's also you know one of the few truly universal issues that all of our families are dealing with. But I think that the the cultural landscape around care right now says that this is an issue that we deal with and struggle with privately. And up until, you know, recently, we haven't tried to, I don't think, as a country, move that conversation into public space, into town hall conversation with town hall conversations with candidates, into, you know, candidate questionnaires. We haven't asked candidates what their long-term plan for long-term care is, because Mm -hmm. I think for the most part, we felt like, well, this is the thing that we figure out with our parents and with our kids, and we try to do the best we can. One of the things that has been transformative about the Carry Across Generations campaign is the number of people who realize that they're not alone Mm -hmm. in what they're struggling with and what they're trying to sort out, and the number of people who realize that 
Medicare doesn't pay for the long-term care needs that they thought that Medicare was going to pay for, and that the private long-term care insurance that maybe their parents had didn't cover all the long-term care needs that their parents had. The people who are having those realizations are obviously having them at a really difficult, really trying moment in their life. And to realize that they're not alone, that there's actually a system of people across the whole country who are wrestling with the exact same challenges, Mm -hmm. I think the more that we realize that those things are, that the issues are connected, and the more that people feel connected with folks who are struggling with exactly the same thing, the closer we are to sort of demanding public policy solutions and that candidates and elected officials actually have some sort of plan around long-term care. Mm-hmm. It's pretty ironic that, that among the presidential front runners, they're all, by the, year, by the time one of them is sworn in, Hillary Clinton's going to be 69, Bernie Sanders will be 75, um, Donald Trump will be 70. These front runners are all clearly affected by this issue, and and yet none of them are really talking about it. Except Hillary Clinton has offered a plan. So what do, what do you think about the plan that Hillary Clinton's team has put forth? Well, I think one thing that's worth acknowledging is that you know besides the what I would call the cultural barriers to talking about care, I think some candidates shy away from this issue because it's not super simple to put down in one paragraph what we're going to do to transform the long-term care system. And I don't say that, you know, in any way as an excuse. I think that elected officials and candidates have a real responsibility uh, to actually come up with a plan and to think long and hard about this. But I also think as they look out at the changing demographics of the country and think, whoa, I'm not sure how to solve this on one page, that some of them have chosen to just you know, try to avoid the conversation rather than go into one that's thorny and difficult and complicated. And we all know that the current campaign structure doesn't lend itself particularly well to complicated, complex answers Mm -hmm. to thorny topics. So I think that's out there right now. I think it's a huge step forward to have a candidate putting forward a plan around long-term care. Where we are right now is that You know, some localities and a number of states are trying to figure out what works for their state, for their community, but to raise the conversation to the national level and raise it in a media landscape where most of what candidates say gets covered and repeated and then recovered and re-repeated the following day, Mm -hmm. to be able to put it in that space. I think just as important as the fact that there's a plan out there is the fact that it then forces other candidates or should force other candidates to speak to a constituency who's been left out and to an issue that's been excluded in past cycles. Mm -hmm. Which states in your mind are doing a good job of providing affordable care for their aging populations? Well, I think that I think I can say nobody's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of states are trying, which I don't mean as a full indictment of all the states, but were, some states are further along on that curve. And I think what's important to note is that they're not all geographically bunched together and they're not all politically similar. So states as different as South Carolina and Oregon in the past year have each taken some steps forward to figure out what's the current makeup of our long-term care system and structure and what would we need to do to improve it. So some states are really moving forward in some particularly exciting ways. So Maine, where I live, has really taken on some proposals to 
create more affordable housing for low-income seniors, think about how to raise wages for home care workers as part of a comprehensive legislative plan. Colorado and Washington State are both studying what it would look like to create some sort of public long-term care insurance option. And again, they're just studying it, so trying to get their arms around what the challenges are and what the potential solutions are. But for a long time, we didn't even study it. We just sort of hoped that the problem would fix itself. Mm -hmm. So states who are actually taking that on, putting some resources behind trying to figure out, like, okay, where are we and what can we do to view this as an asset rather mm-hmm. than a challenge. Mm-hmm. How can we, and I think that for me is maybe the biggest way that we can tell that states have turned the corner, is when they look at their changing demographics and say, you know what, this is an opportunity to do new things. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to create new jobs. It's an opportunity to improve quality of life for seniors in our state. When they move out of crisis mode and into, this is actually you know, a way for us to grow, then it opens up a range of new conversations on the policy side, but also on the community side, just around how we're framing the issue. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that Hawaii is actually furthest along in terms of trying to put together a legislative proposal that would help people on the financial side have access to resources to pay for their long-term care needs. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the bill that was recently introduced, Living Independently for Extended Time Act? Senator Maisie Hirono, is it, in Hawaii, proposed, proposed uh, mm-hmm. support for the states. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Senator Hirono has been such a champion on this issue at the, at the federal level. And it's interesting because there's so much work happening in Hawaii than to have um, sort of the champion in the United States Senate um, also be from Hawaii. does not seem coincidental to me at all. So happy to talk a little bit about what's happening in their state legislature. But the Lifetime Act that Senator Hirono introduced is really meant to help states kickstart their thinking around long-term care. So the notion is that at the federal level, there would be resources available for states to apply for, Mm -hmm. to do a little bit of a systems analysis and a little bit of a study of what the current landscape is like in their state. I think it's worth acknowledging that right now, the data that exists, Janet, in some states, varies really, really greatly, you know, even across state lines. I can people imagine. People are not collecting. Right. You know, people don't all collect the same data. Some of the agencies don't always talk to one another. Like, these are common challenges. This idea is really about can we help states who want to take the next step forward actually have a way to do it in a way that makes sense for their state. So one of the really exciting things about the legislation, if it were to pass, is that States would be writing about what works for them and what they want to use the money for and applying in that thread rather than being told, here's exactly how you're supposed to use the money. Mm -hmm. So it really does give lots of power and lots of autonomy back to states and state legislatures to figure out, well, what do we need to learn and what do we need to do? And then actually have some resources that they can apply for. As we all know, all state legislators are trying to balance lots of competing interests. So this would just help move some of the long-term care needs up that ladder of things that state legislators are considering and able to help fund. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is how the issue is emerging as a national issue. I look at the path of the raise. Family Caregivers Act, and who knows whether it's mm-hmm. ever going to be passed, much less funded. <laughs> but it has passed in the Senate, and it now has uh, 28 co-sponsors in the House version of the bill. And it's been fascinating for me to watch the progression of, especially the House gain more and more co-sponsors, which to me speaks to the issue of how caregiving is emerging as a national issue. So 
What do you what do you think about the the chances of the Raise Family Caregivers Act being passed? And can you can you talk a, a little bit about that? Is it viable? Ooh, it's always <laughs> a dangerous question around this current Congress. I think that the fact that we're having that you and I are having this conversation right now means that it you know we're further down this road than we were a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Which I thinking politically that feels like progress to me. Like, we spend a lot of time trying to get into the conversation and we get shut out, and then we get into the conversation, but we still won't pass the legislation. I think it's worth acknowledging that there is a long road for almost all the things that we want to accomplish in the political realm, and Mm -hmm. an even longer road when that political realm is at the federal level. So I'm not sure. I think that if I were a member of Congress and I were looking out, I think one of my biggest learnings would be about how many family caregivers there were in my district, about how many paid caregivers there were in my district, and about how many people are receiving care in my district. And I think that's the untold story that this legislation, the Lifetime Act, that the work we're trying to do with the campaign is really trying to lift up. Mm-hmm. That for a long, you know, for a long time, this has just been off the radar of, I won't say all, but a lot of elected officials at all levels of government. So I think the more that we're able to force that conversation in a way that's helpful and do right. some education with our elected officials, right? Uh, I think the closer we are to actually passing legislation that brings real change. Right. I mean, and that's a really good point because legislators need to be educated just as much as the public does. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, let, so let's talk about some of your partners. I know that you are a partner with various organizations. And uh, can you talk about the Family Caregivers Platform Project? I know there's, they're one of your partners. Yeah, they're doing such great work. And I, I think I saw Vicki had been on the podcast yes. uh, before. Uh-huh. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's. She's wonderful, and the work that they have done is so exciting to think about, you know, how can we use the fact that it's an election year to take this conversation further than it would otherwise go, which to me makes sense when we think about elections. We think about, you know, it's the biggest public conversation that we get to have around what's important to us and what we value as a society. And so to take advantage of the fact, like they are, that state party platform committees are meeting this year to Mm -hmm. uh, try Mm -hmm. to figure out you know, on both sides of the aisle, what should be a part of our state party platform heading into the elections this year? We can really actively engage there and have members on the ground having conversations about what it would look like to insert a conversation about aging or long-term care or caregivers. What I love about the work that they're doing and what we certainly try to do at Carrier Cross Generations is make sure that the work that's happening on the ground is reflective of what people working in those communities and living in those communities want to see in advance. Mm-hmm. So to try to move to try to move out of that top down approach or to try to move out of mm-hmm. what I think we've seen in the past from some groups around DC focused advocacy and to really think about like, okay, well what works across the country? And what works in one place might not work in another place. And what people need in one city might not be a need someplace else. So what I love about that project Mm -hmm. is a real commitment to having conversations with people who are figuring this out state by state and seeing which policies and which platforms belong in which places. So I think that's been really exciting work that they're doing. It's It's been fun to partner with them, although... You know, there's certainly huge leaders in the space, so it's nice to be along for the ride on the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the other projects that Carrying Across Generations is, is promoting? Uh, specifically, what are some of the things that you guys are doing? 
And one of the big things that we're working on right now is specific to the state of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So, as I, as I mentioned, they are considering a bill at their state legislative level to create a public long-term care insurance program. So, this would be a universal benefit uh, that would create a pool of resources so that for 365 days, everyone who is paying Hawaii state income tax would be able to access $70 a day for 365 days to help meet their long-term care needs. And we think that this is potentially groundbreaking legislation because it would be the first time that a state had ever moved into the space of saying, we actually need to put resources that are universally accessible for our residents to be able to access and just acknowledge long-term care costs right now are out of control. And if you're not super wealthy, it's incredibly difficult to be able to afford the care that you need. And we find a lot of people having that realization when they're in the moment of needing care or someone in their family is in the moment of needing care and realizing there's a big gap between Medicaid, which often covers a decent amount of long-term care needs, and independent individual wealth, which can cover long-term care needs and everything in between. Mm -hmm. People People who fall in that gap in between are left without a lot of recourse. But, of course, these are families, like we all know, who wind up sometimes trying to spend resources down to be able to qualify for Medicaid, to be able to pay for the care that they need. What's exciting about the legislation in Hawaii is the idea that there could be a better way. There could be a different path forward where everyone pays in and then everyone's able to access some amount of benefits to help be able to provide care for people in their own homes and communities. And it's also worth noting that that legislation is creating a pool of money that people would access again at $70 a day for 365 days. They don't have to come right one right after the other, but we all know that that's not enough money for someone who is going to stay a year in a facility. Mm-hmm. Costs for nursing care, we know, are way higher than that. So this is really geared towards trying to help support families who are already providing mm-hmm. some sort of care for someone in their family mm-hmm. and to just be able to do it with a little bit less financial strain or to be able to make it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. So we've imagined situations like how I guess a lot of our families have where every day after work someone goes over to check on mom and dad in the home where they've lived for the past 30 or 40 years. But maybe on Thursday afternoons your work takes you a little bit further away. You're not going to get back until eight in the evening. So the idea behind this legislation is you use those resources to help bring somebody in to mom and dad's home for those two or three hours where you're not there to just make sure somebody's there to provide the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's one day a week for a period of time. But we want to get to that space where people who are already figuring out how to make this happen are able to keep providing the care that they're providing. But again, with just a little bit less strain. Mm-hmm. The folks who crafted that legislation, how did they decide on that particular figure? I mean, it's it sounds really smart because it's not overreaching and it's not chump change, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a help. And so, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about so many different things right now. I'm thinking first of all that <laughs> if this works, it's going to be the one thing that works that everybody is going to look at and say, "Oh, let's try that." Because as soon as something is shown to be provably helpful, maybe it can be modeled in other states. So how do they arrive at the language of the legislation and and, and that figure? It's a great question. I think um, it's actually a great case study in how to build 
sort of political campaign around long-term care. So this isn't the first legislative session where they'll have considered this issue. In Mm -hmm. fact, they have introduced a similar bill on two occasions within the past, say, 10 or 12 years. And this bill grows out of a commission report that came out of the 2014 legislative session, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. So the legislature heard one of these bills and then directed a commission to actually study what it would look like, what the different options were to create a program like this. So what are the different funding mechanisms? How much money can we afford to pay out and still remain solvent to do that actuarial work? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they actually committed to putting the research into this and not just saying this is good, but we don't have the money for it. They did the work to figure out how much money would we need, where would we raise it, and then what would it look like to pay that money out to people in our state. So this is the culmination of lots of years of work and a couple of years of really deep actuarial analysis to Mm -hmm. figure out the numbers behind it, Mm -hmm. as well as I think that we're still in the midst of having the public conversation of, you know, what are the long-term care options available now and what would it look like to expand those into the public realm? Mm -hmm. So I say culmination, knowing, of course, that, you know, we're about to, Hawaii opens their state legislative session on the 20th of this month at the end of January. Mm -hmm. So they'll be considering this bill, and we're really excited about the chance that they're going to pass it this year. We know that it's, as always, a long road to achieve legislation like this. The hope, though, is exactly what you said, Jenna, that when this bill passes in Hawaii, it's a model for other states. We're still going to have to do that hard work, right? Mm-hmm. They're still going to need to mm-hmm. figure out their, you know, their funding mechanism. It's probably going to have to be a little bit different. The amount that they pay out will be a little different. These are all things contingent upon population, and Hawaii uses a little bit unique in terms of when people come and stay and when people leave. So every state's still going to have work to do, but I think you're right. Once there's a breakthrough in one or two places, it's a little bit of a shot in the arm for state legislators who are trying to figure out what it would look like to take this on in their state. Mm-hmm. And I should also say, I hope that it's a push at the federal level, too, because mm-hmm. ultimately, I think that it's important for us to think about what federal solutions in this space look like. Going state by state is one way to achieve this goal. But I think it's a really currently big challenge to figure out long-term care financing and long-term care support for people who need it. And I think when we have big challenges, we need big solutions. And I often think that means trying to figure out what Congress could do to be helpful. Mm-hmm. The state of Maine is also so interesting, the state you live in, because you're, the average age is quite a bit higher than it is in the rest of the country, right? It's like 46 or something, or 47? Maine's the oldest state in the country. Right, yeah. and so you've got this, not only this population whose median age is higher than the rest of the country, but also you've got people living in rural areas where they can't get to aid. And, and so the state of Maine is very unique in its own way, but surely um, the rest of the country can learn from what you folks are uh, learning in your own, finding your own solutions. I hope so. I mean, the Speaker of the House, Mark Eves, here in Maine, has really done tremendous work in this space and has really made kind of the past two years of his legislative portfolio center around aging and long-term care. And the work that not just he and others in his office have done, but the work that people who care about these issues have done to come together and craft what I think are pretty bold policy solutions Mm -hmm. is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Maybe the most exciting thing is that at a time where a lot of really good ideas get bogged down in, uh, you know, keeping score between political parties. Yeah. 
it's really exciting to see this proposal here in Maine, a state where plenty of other issues have gotten bogged down in that exact same scorecard, <laughs> where people from both parties were able to work together and come together and say, this is an issue that affects my constituents. It's mm-hmm. not an issue that's actually tied up in partisan politics. And it's a way to do you know, what I think a lot of elected officials would say, the work that we were sent to the state capitol to do, to yeah, try to exactly. improve the quality of life for people in the state. And, and to see that felt, I think, refreshing is the word that I want. Right. Where folks, you know, people who uh, on every other day of the week get to argue about whatever the bill of the day is. Uh-huh. On this issue, they were able to work together and bring together groups across the state who didn't know that each other existed much less had never worked together, and that crossed rural and urban lines, and yeah, just brought some new relationships and coalitions together that I think are going to last even beyond the passage of some of the legislation last session. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be interesting if the issue of caregiving, which is a nonpartisan issue, let's face it, we're all affected by it, no matter what our, our party preference, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be interesting mm-hmm. if that emerged as the issue that actually got legislators to talking to each other and working together on other on other legislation that's not related to caregiving. <laughs> I think that could be really exciting. I think it would be equally exciting to see them open the door to the conversations with voters who they might not otherwise have conversations mm-hmm. with. You know, I think yeah. as, as candidates think about, well, who do I want to get to talk to? And which neighborhoods am I going to talk to people in? And where am I supposed to come from? Mm-hmm. And I think care and aging are things that really disrupt that popular narrative. Yeah. And I think the changing idea of, you know, I put seniors in air quotes, um, you know, seniors <laughs> is a monolithic block. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that everybody who is 65 years old or older looks exactly the same, lives in the same sort of community and votes the same way. Like that, that's a holdover idea from mm-hmm. yesteryear. It right. doesn't hold true. And I think that the more that elected officials and candidates are able to understand the nuance, and able to think about what does that look like currently, not what does it look like 50 or 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the better position they're going to be as candidates and elected officials, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Because you're really having to reframe not just the issue of long-term care, but the issue of how we define ourselves as we age. And I think a lot of the way we think about these issues is stuck in an old model of thinking. And so it's going to require innovative policy solutions as well as innovative thinking around how we grow older. And um, one of the questions I want to ask you, Kevin, was, first of all, what drew you to this particular work? And if there is anyone in your family who you've, you've sort of been inspired to get involved with this sort of work, uh, is there a family tie to this issue for you? That's a great question. Thanks for asking me. I don't uh, often get to get to talk about that part uh, of my work. Um, you know, I used to, before I came to work for the campaign, work for Maine People's Alliance, a state-based group here in Maine. And at NPA, we were partners with the Carry Across Generations campaign. So I was first introduced to Carry Across that way as we were doing some work at the state level. And honestly, at At first, Jenna, it felt a little bit like one of the issues that we were working on and a long list of issues, healthcare, minimum wage issues, Mm -hmm. you name it. We were Mm -hmm. thinking about it and trying to talk to people about it. And it was interesting because I had this confluence of things where Carrying Across Generations brought together some of the field partners from across the country to have a conversation about what was working and what wasn't and what we were going to do in the coming year. So as I went to that, gathering in Washington. At the same time, Mike Gamby, who 
lives in Jupiter, Florida, was moving from the home where she lived for just the past 30 years or so into an assisted living facility. And it was a long process to find the right spot for her to move. It was really challenging because Gammy's 89 or 90 now, and she went from having someone come into her place once a week to help with some of the shopping, um, which we knew we needed when it turned out that her uh, she stopped for a red mailbox instead of a stop sign, Aww. and that was the sign for us. So I was Oof. like, okay, maybe maybe no more driving. Yeah. Um, Did you call her Gandhi? I call her Gammy. G-A-M-M-Y. Oh, Gammy. Oh, how sweet. Gammy, yeah. It was a progression that we, I think we see a lot of our families, right? Someone coming in once a week, someone being there maybe three times a week to, you know, Gammy getting to the point where she couldn't remember if she'd eaten breakfast that day. And, you know, I live in Maine. The rest of my family is pretty spread out. My aunt lives about 30 minutes away from Gammy, but she couldn't be there every day because she had other job and family responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So it got to this point where to provide the sort of care that she needed, she needed to make a move, which was really hard for her oh, yeah. because, you know, not only was this her home, but this was her community. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my Gammy is uh, she's a big musical theater lover. So she spent a lot of the past two decades directing different stage productions in her condo community. Wow. So she, yeah, most of our conversations focused around the different ailments of her cast members and how she was <laughs> working around them to be able to get a production up on any oh given day. Gosh, I, was that's, I would love it. So, you know, it was really, that was a huge part of her community and her social life. So sure. to have her making that move at the same time that I was at a conversation around what does this look like to engage candidates and organize communities around care. So like, wow, those things are really like, they're both hitting me at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And so came back to Maine and we decided um, at Maine People's Alliance that one of the things we wanted to do was we were just going to send an email out to our list of members across the state and ask them what if this was an issue that they cared about or if they ever thought about. And I expected a really low response rate. I didn't really think we were going to hear back from people. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, the second or third highest response rate of any email that we'd sent that year. Wow. Like the number of people who wrote back who had never written back to an email uh-huh. at NBA before and said, can't believe you asked me about this. Uh-huh. Like, here's what's going on in my family. It was overwhelming. And it felt like, okay, well, it's happening in political space at this meeting. It's happening in my own family because my gammy makes a transition from one home to the next. Uh-huh. And now it's happening like right here at my job in the state where I live. Uh-huh. It felt like a really exciting issue to be a part of. So I was, I was really uh, grateful to be able to join the team in early 2015. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Uh, if you had 15 minutes to sit down with one of the presidential candidates uh, to discuss long-term care, what sort of questions would you ask them? Well, I think that's that's exciting for somebody like me. That would be <laughs> great. I think maybe the first thing I'd ask is if they could bring in a couple more of their candidates so we could you know, get everybody on the record. But I think you know, what feels important to me is actually to start the way that we start a lot of meetings at Carry Across, the way that we start a lot of conversations with the new groups with whom we're working across the country, it would be to ask the candidate's own experience around care yeah. as a provider, as a recipient. I mean, when we talk about it as a universal issue, that's not a political line. Right. Like, we actually see care as universal. And I think 
you know, when people are running, it helps them if they're pretty laser focused on their talking points and their issues. But mm-hmm. I would love to take a half step back and ask whichever candidate was sitting across from me about what CARES looked like in their family mm-hmm. and what it felt like to provide it and what it felt like to receive it. Because I think it refocuses a little bit mm-hmm. on we're not playing a ping pong match and trying to figure out who can hit the ball hardest past the other person. We're trying to work with people from as many political parties as want to work together to come up with big solutions for a need that a lot of people in the country have right now. Mm-hmm. So what can people do to get involved with caring across generations? Can you speak to that a little bit? It's maybe my favorite question to answer. I don't think <laughs> I should. I think it's up there on my list of favorite <laughs> questions to answer. So um, one great way for people to be involved, if they're so inclined, is to visit our website and sign up with us there. So our website is www.caringacross.org. Again, it's www.caringacross.org. And if you go to our website, you can find a spot to enter your email address, which is a really great way to stay in touch with everything that we're doing. And you can also find links to our social media accounts. So if you're a Facebook person or a Twitter person, you can find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages there, and you can sign up to keep in touch with us that way. We put a lot of information out in the world about actions that we're taking. So right now, tonight is the State of the Union address, President Obama's final State of the Union that he'll deliver. So we've had a petition for the past few days. There's a president's speechwriter, actually, asking that they include caregiving and long-term care in tonight's speech. Mm -hmm. So people who are inclined to sort of follow along with actions like that and be a part of this large national movement, definitely find our website. And then on our site, there are also ways to reach out to us individually. If you're looking to connect with one of our field partners where you live or learn a little bit more about what you could do locally, there are lots of ways to get in touch with individual staff there. And I'm happy to have you share my email address and contact information on your site, Janet. I will. Do you see a difference in the way that people engage with this along generational lines? I think so. I mean, I think one way that that's happened is over the past, say, eight or ten years. I think we've seen, uh, as a result of tough economic times, a return to multi-generational family living for some families that maybe didn't plan on it. Uh So a lot of millennials who wound up living with their parents who were also sharing a home with their grandparents, all of a sudden there were three generations under one roof. So I think relationships and care relationships were, you know, defined in the past decade by what the economy demanded. And I think that's really changed how some millennials think about care for their parents, care for their grandparents and the relationships that are there. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge driving factor in how, you know, they view this issue and how they think about care. The other is we come across a lot of our members who are, you know, they fall into that, uh, you know, previously monolithic group of quote-unquote seniors and you know they're 65 66 and they're still caring for their parents Mm -hmm. so they're they're helping provide care for someone older than them and their their family or for you know a mother-in-law so I, i think the issue certainly is defined differently by generation um and we continue to be surprised at each group with whom we're working of you know what it looks like and what where the passion is around like how to have a little bit more support for the care that they need and the care that they're providing. Mm -hmm. Well, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I'm going to give you a chance to throw in any extra thoughts if you have them. 
I, I appreciate it. I mean, I think where you started, Jen, is an interesting place to come back. And I think you said, like, people can call themselves retirees. Um, you know, that number continues to grow. And, of course, the number of people who are turning 65 and still working, um, you know, and who are able to retire is still growing, too. And I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, as, as the demographics of the country shift, you know, I think it's 7 in 10 people are going to need some form of care as they get older. So what I'm most excited about is the fact that, like, we're finally starting to have this conversation. That's why I think, you know, like, the work that you're doing and moving this into the public, you know, on the media side and bringing more people on to talk about, so what do we do and how do we take action feels really important. So the less that people feel like this is just something that they have to deal with on their own and the more that people realize that, you know, the current, culture suggests that we're supposed to deal with this on our own. We don't see many representations of long-term care or aging in pop culture outside of like what I would call now pretty traditional ones around nursing homes or people having to move out of the place where they feel comfortable. And so to be able to disrupt that culture also means starting to have a conversation in big, bold, public ways. So excited to use the presidential election and the entire election year as a way to do that and hoping that more and more people are going to feel like the experience that they have in their own family is one that is connected to lots of experiences that are happening all across the country. Well, Kevin Simowitz, thank you so much for being on the show. Kevin is the political director of Caring Across Generations. You can find out more about his organization by going to caringacross.org and go and sign up, get involved. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. Okay. Take care, Kevin. Bye-bye. Bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free on iTunes. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise.